Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. Got a lot of stuff. Got a lot, a lot of stuff, stuff to talk about today. A lot. And not a lot of it is pretty. No, although we do have our, uh, you know, one of our one of our most optimistic guests coming up a little bit later to talk about some some good things that maybe haven't been reported very much. Are they actually good? You know, yeah. we, we definitely are part of the uh, actually it's bad crowd, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's not I always the case. It. It's not always the case. <laughs> there is also a what I think must be a pretty important legal challenge to DACA starting today yes that really has not gotten that much attention and so i am glad that we are going to be able to talk about it we will talk about boris johnson hanging on over there and how long that is going to last and you know if i could interrupt you on that point mm-hmm. um a lot of what the media actually changed my mind no it's <laughs> good <John. laughs> a lot of what the media are telling us today about boris johnson mm-hmm. is that many of his aides are resigning mm-hmm it's not his aides that are resigning. It's the cabinet right. that's They're not resigning. His aides. No. Yeah. The chancellor of the exchequer is not one of his aides. He's not the housekeeper. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what they have largely, with the exception of the New York Times today, what they have largely failed to talk about is the fact that this happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It happened to Theresa May. It happened to John Major. It happened to Margaret Thatcher. It happens all the time. And if Boris Johnson can't see the writing on the wall, then he's the only one who can't see the writing on the wall mm-hmm. because his days are numbered. He's not going to resign today. He may hang on for a little while, but it's pretty well over for him. Well, I will say he's been through a lot that would have taken out a lesser, yeah. a lesser prime minister. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll talk about that. We'll take a look ahead at the uh, to the G20. We'll talk about what the U.S. and China might be getting into at the upcoming meeting between mm-hmm. the foreign ministries of those nations. And we'll get into how truly dangerous it can be to express your anger online if you are expressing anger at, say, an institution like That's the Supreme right. Court, not if you are, you know, mad, right. mad about somebody's pronouns or no. something. Yeah. You know, this is actually like a public service announcement we mm-hmm. can make here. Uh, it's if, if you're angry and you're going to vent on social media, choose your words carefully Mm -hmm. because there may be a knock on your door afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful. I also want to talk, uh, before we get into anything else, I want to talk about, I always have something to say about the wall street journals morning podcast. (laughs) It's very useful. Damn that right-wing paper. It really is. Um, And this morning, they spent some time talking about Ukraine and what uh, we are supposed to believe the U.S. and the West generally is learning from watching that fight play out. Yes. And so they start by noting that the war in Ukraine is the first in decades involving large, fairly modern, and roughly evenly matched forces, right? Because since World War II, as they noted, there has not been um, a lack of wars. It's just that most of them have involved cutting edge forces facing off against smaller foes. And what wars, what wars did this fellow reference? Vietnam, Mm -hmm. the two Gulf Wars in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And what do they have in common? Oh, it was the U.S. mostly starting, starting all of those wars, uh, right? I mean, I think that's fair enough to say. And losing most of them. Yeah, losing most of them. With the one exception maybe of the first Gulf War. The first Gulf War. 
and yeah. that would be it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, mostly the U.S. and mostly losing. Uh, really doesn't bode well if the U.S. is looking. If the U.S. is looking for a war, it can win. Hey, maybe near peer, uh, near peer conflict is the way to go. Could be. <laughs> great, great. Lots to look forward to. Um, so the the fellow who they are speaking to uh, also says that people <laughs> in the West, you know, over these decades where you have the U.S. waging these asymmetrical wars mm-hmm. against much smaller, poorer foes. And for some reason, losing. Uh, we've gotten the idea that war can be surgical, mm-hmm. right? And the example they used is that mm-hmm. someone sitting in a basement in Wyoming can use a drone or a laser-guided missile to take out a specific building and leave its neighbors standing. And he says, "Well, this war in Ukraine isn't like that, and most war isn't like that." And I just want to stop and say, I agree. I think most war isn't like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly Israel's periodic wars on Gaza are not like that. The war in Yemen is not like that. But I also think our many wars have not been like that. And I wanted to just ask, how do you think people in the West could have gotten the idea that our wars, in particular, uh, the, the second Iraq war and our war in Afghanistan, were so precise? You know, I think it's because we're good at propaganda in the early days of wars. We come up with these stupid phrases like shock and awe, for example, mm-hmm. or we we tell Saddam Hussein, we're going to bomb him back into the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. And people eat that stuff up. Mm-hmm. None of it's true, of course, mm-hmm. but people really... They like it and then they run with it. And they really have. We really have. We have a press that has really repeated claims by the military as to the precision of their weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a press that has not really done very much to chase down true civilian casualty numbers. There's Mm -hmm. been really very little interest in it. Like only what? uh, Seven years the war in Syria has been going on. Eight years. Only sort of seven or eight years into this battle have we seen any kind of appetite for actually looking at how precise any of these uh, attacks are and Mm -hmm. how many people actually are killed. They've been really happy to to mostly regurgitate what the military has been telling us. That's right. right. And act like it's, uh, you know, only only the bad guys, only our adversaries who ever kill civilians. Without, you know, exactly and, and right. that things like shock and awe or somehow like big fireworks displays that don't really kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it See, doesn't make any sense. It's a weird cognitive dissonance that we all live in all the time. That's that, an important point. Yeah. That, you know, and I've heard a lot, too, about um, about the difference in the U.S. approach to war and the Russian approach to war. Uh, we. We've heard in the U.S. media so frequently since February about how the Russians are bogged down. The Russians actually aren't bogged down. They just go about things in a different way. They don't take the first month and then completely destroy the civilian infrastructure like we do. But without killing any civilians, John, and that's the important thing to remember, the U.S. can completely destroy infrastructure and uh, wound nary a soul. Yes. According to some of our uh, biggest and most beloved media outlets. And of course, uh, all the DOD spokespeople you can shake a stick at. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, The other lessons that they are apparently learning in in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, the new chief of the U.K.'s general staff apparently told this uh, Wall Street Journal reporter that his main takeaway is that you can't do without old fashioned fighting skills. You can't cyber your way across a river, which I think like (laughs) we couldn't. We didn't learn that in 20 years in Afghanistan. I'm sure we did. I think the problem there is that we didn't care about the people who were mostly on the ground fighting that war, right? The Afghan soldiers who were enduring losses 
that we would find intolerable. Yes. Right? Pretty yes, sure indeed. ISIS knows you can't cyber across a river. And we know that too. Yeah, that's we just, right. Th- those people are all expendable and we don't care. Now it's white people dying in Ukraine on both sides and their their deaths all matter. Absolutely right. It is really grim. The other thing that scares me uh, about this report is that apparently one of the things that's been really shocking to observers of this war is how much ammunition and materiel gets burned through, how much gets expended. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a senior NATO official mentioned uh, that they are seeing that what you burn through in days or hours can take weeks to transport to the Mm -hmm. front line and take Mm -hmm. years to produce. Mm -hmm. And what should we expect will follow this? Except a justification for spending even more money on preparing for a conflict that's going to eat up material on a scale like like we are seeing in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so by emphasizing, I think, how long it takes to build this stuff, they're going to justify taking even more resources that should be used for the well-being of the people in the United States and instead give it all to Northrop Grumman mm-hmm. and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon to build up stockpiles even greater than the ones we already have for some you know future conflict that we're definitely going to lose. That's right. <laughs> unless, unless we decide That's exactly to nuke right. our enemies. Again. Right. And so I think it's important to listen to this because I do I do expect that to come through. This is the major lesson they're learning that you need more missiles. You need more. You need more of everything that bodes ill for all of us. Yes, it does. That's all. And and we've we've gone through this in the past, too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's especially egregious now with Ukraine just because we've we've got this national policy of giving the Ukrainians Everything that their hearts could possibly desire mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and constantly replenishing. Uh, I can't imagine that we're not going to get to a point where the American people say enough. I think I, I mean, we, there was a, a survey going around yesterday, results of a survey. I think it was a morning consult poll, but I'm not sure. And it was asking about Americans like most serious concerns and the war in Ukraine and the January 6th commission did not yeah. appear at the top, no. which is not to say that they're not necessarily important. But, you know. People have consistently not not been necessarily all of that all that interested in stuff. I remember a Washington Post uh, editorial back uh, back during the uh, Trump's impeachment uh, with uh, Alexander Vindman testifying, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. Sure. It was this scolding scolding opinion piece uh, in the style section, uh, huh. saying Americans should pay attention to this. Uh, this impeachment and they should, you know, if they couldn't make themselves pay attention from a civics point of view, they should treat it as like serial television or something. It was just like, if you can't afford, and if you can't afford, I remember this line, if you can't afford a subscription to a newspaper, you can go to a library and read for free. And I just thought, what is the matter with you? You think someone who can't afford a subscription to the Washington Post or the New York Times, one of the outlets that is covering this slavishly, that they want to take public transportation to right. a library after their minimum wage job to catch up on your opinions of wh- what oh the phone God. call between Trump oh my and uh, Zelensky was like. It was outrageous. Uh, I, that was a, a flashback to outrage from like 2018 from me. But Wow. Yeah. Uh, other news, man, this isn't news, just sort of awful business that I became aware of yesterday. You saw that uh, two of the victims in the Highland Park shooting were both parents of the same toddler. Yes. And their two-year-old was found wandering the streets. Just unbelievable. Stunning. And then, of course, we got more news about the shooter. He mm-hmm. was charged today formally. And uh, he's confessed. 
I, I've gotten push notifications in the last uh, 30 minutes or so saying that he's confessed. He was charged with seven counts of murder. I guess mm-hmm. now he's confessed to it. And everyone is taking, uh, you know, looking at how he came to get his hands on these weapons, especially yes. because he's just 21 years old. And has had mental health crises. Well, yeah. He had a, in 2019, uh, police came to his house because mm-hmm. a family member said he had threatened to, quote, kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. They came to the house. They found a whole bunch of knives, right. a da- dagger and a sword, which is kind of funny. Didn't make any arrests. And I guess his no. father said the weapons were his. Yeah, they confiscated the weapons and then gave them back three hours later. Right. This is in September. In December, he applies for the permit that will let you carry a firearm in the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And because he was under 18 Mm -hmm. or under 21 at the time, uh, he was underage to apply on your own. So you need someone to sponsor your application. And his father sponsored it. And because of that... The police decided they did not have a sufficient basis to to deny it. So I don't even know if that means that it was flagged that there had been this issue at his house before or that because a parent is saying, oh, no, my obviously unwell child is uh, is well enough to have an extremely dangerous weapon. He went on and he passed four different background checks, bought five different different uh, weapons, Uh according to NPR. And I guess there was no. Flag to drop in the system. They they ought to charge the father with depraved indifference. Dad seems like he has made some yeah. very bad decisions. Yeah, this is some really bad parenting. Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems like it. And then also we have uh, Tucker Carlson last night uh, raising a red flag, uh, saying that maybe this guy sort of didn't raise the red flags he should have because uh, most young men in America are like him. And he didn't stand out. They look like him. They act like him. They smoke. I think the phrase was government sanctioned weed, uh, which everyone knows makes people violent. They're given Ritalin and Adderall at school by counselors. I don't think that's how. Uh, No, it's not how it works. Your parents have to do that. And then they're given antidepressants and anti-anxiety adults. And then uh, ladies lecture them about their privilege. And all of this combines to make it a miserable existence. And so no wonder. It's society's fault. I mean, I do think. I think this is idiotic, right? Yeah. It's, it's stupid. All young men are not like this guy. Uh, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, I do think. My God. And, and laying his actions at the feet of, uh, you know, psychiatric drugs is silly. I will say we are in a society where everybody's taking something. Everybody. Everybody's taking something to just maintain a level of sanity that allows you to get through this life. Yes. They're taking antidepressant medication, anti-anxiety medication, all of this stuff. That's not making people commit crimes. No, it's keeping but, them from committing the crimes. But flagging that, I think we should say we have created a society where people's brains are, our society is so depressing and grinding that people need uh, a, a drug assist to simply want to stay living in it. That's mm-hmm. not good. No. There's no, there's, that's, that is, that is a problem. And Tucker Carlson is wrong to say that this guy committed this crime because of the drugs he was taking mm-hmm. for whatever mental illness he might have been uh, diagnosed with or if he was. Mm-hmm. But it's not wrong that we should take a close look at the kind of world we've built where it, Functioning adults who are living completely comfortable lives are still so miserable. They need uh, some kind of assist to get through the day. Right. I want to add one thing. I know we have to go to uh, to our break, but I want to add one thing. Uh, Monmouth University put out a poll last night around eight o'clock. Very comprehensive poll that has Joe Biden's approval rating at an all time low of thirty six percent. It's not just that it's a low for Joe Biden. This is the lowest approval rating for any president 
since the advent of polling. Wow. Yeah. Lower than Donald Trump, lower than Jimmy Carter, lower than Harry Truman. When he was so low that everybody was convinced that Dewey was going to defeat him. Wow. Yes. I knew you'd find something to make me smile about, John. (laughs) (laughs) And now people are starting to talk about um, uh, Illinois Governor Pritzker, Mm -hmm. California Governor Gavin Newsom, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps. Oh, we're going to talk about this later. We're going to talk about this later because I wonder if actually, ironically, and then I know we have to go, but I wonder if this is actually a, a primary of Joe Biden is the best thing for the Democratic Party. Right. I think I think that's worth discussing. Yeah. Which we'll do. Yes, I'm looking forward to In our second to that. hour. We're yep. going to take a break here and come back with some foreign policy news. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will have what is being described as a candid conversation about Ukraine with his Chinese counterpart, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, when the two attend the upcoming G20 summit in Indonesia, beginning on Saturday. Blinken's office said yesterday that the U.S. government seeks the input of, quote, all responsible countries, unquote, and that the meeting with the Chinese will give the U.S. the opportunity to convey its expectations of the Chinese on Ukraine and other issues. On bilateral relations, Blinken said that the U.S. prefers intense diplomacy with China to, quote, manage responsibly the competition between the two countries, unquote. What language? Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said yesterday that the country has suffered $100 billion in infrastructure damage since the start of the war and that it is the duty of, quote, the democratic world, unquote, to foot the bill. That means you and me. Ukraine's military spokesman said that Russian troops are preparing renewed advances towards cities in the Donetsk region after securing the city of Lysychansk the final city to fall in Luhansk. And NATO has formally begun the process of admitting Finland and Sweden into the alliance with both countries signing the protocols of accession. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. It seems like it's been a little while. And I'm sure it hasn't. We probably haven't spoken to you for 10 days or so, but it just seems like a long time. Um, so, Mark, let's begin with China this time. The U.S. has had a, a difficult relationship with China for what seems like decades now. Many of those difficulties, especially over the last 10 years or so, seem, in my humble opinion, unnecessary. Now we hear of an upcoming meeting between Secretary Blinken and his Chinese counterpart, but with some sharp language attached to it. Do you think this is going to be one of those unproductive meetings where the two sides just sit there and stare at one another? Uh, Or should we expect some sort of progress in relations between China and the United States? Yeah, I I don't think that this is going to be one of those unproductive meetings where both sides sit there and stare at each other. I think this is going to be one of those unproductive meetings where both 
sides sit there and scream at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we've seen that uh, in uh, previously uh, between meetings between the U.S. and China with the Biden administration. I mean, just look at the language that Antony Blinken is putting going out. Uh, going into this meeting, he is going to present the U.S. expectations hmm. about what China should and should not do with regards to Russia and Ukraine. Their expectations, not what we would like them to do, or you know, we'll discuss you know it overall. But their expectations. I, Whenever the U.S., whenever we see a U.S. leader use language like that, I I saw another um, another bit by Blinken earlier this week using the word, the modal must, China must. Yes. And I'm like, the hubris. (laughs) I mean, yes, China. I mean, everyone agrees. I mean, that China is the certainly in economic and population terms, uh, it is uh, the other superpower in the world compared to the United States right now. By several economic uh, factors, you know, it has already surpassed the United States and by the others, it will very shortly. And uh, on on top of that, the Chinese military is growing by leaps and bounds. They just began work on their third aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the unipolar is a moment is over, United States. Hello. If you want to do some diplomacy, you have to do diplomacy, right? A little, a little more carrot, a little less stick. Indeed, uh, G twenty meetings are usually pretty ceremonial uh, events, and there isn't a lot that comes out of them. You know, we we anxiously await these communiques at the end of the thing, and uh, you know, it's all about we, we love you, <laughs> you love us, and. <laughs> Mark said, speak for yourself, really? there, John. I mean, do you? <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that before. I mean, there's got to be somebody, I guess. Well, this one's going to be, you know, in the midst of the Ukraine war. And the war is obviously going to be a major talk, topic of conversation. Should we expect something different in the final communication? Should we expect some sort of substantive uh, joint uh, event? something that everybody signs on to. Do you remember any substantive? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you, you when know, I was at the I CIA, we would, it, it would be like criminal criminologists just pouring over every word and who's standing next to whom in the picture. And it was ridiculous. Careers were made on yeah. that silliness, but that, but none of that is substantive, right? No, this is, no this it's is, not substantive. I, I, the biggest thing is a chance for world leaders to do photo ops and, and you know, uh, have some private words with each other. But it's not like any serious work. There's nothing serious that really comes out of these communiques. You know, the last no. few years have seen the G20 uh, talking mostly about uh, dealing with the effects of the uh, pandemic uh, on their economies and, you know, uh, the struggle for vaccines and everything. And when it comes down to it, despite the statements coming out of the, the, the G20 and everything, there was no global effort. Most countries were out for themselves uh, in this situation. And, and you know, a, a few countries like China that were most 
crypto native to to the the third world and so on they were regularly criticized by the united states for for giving away their vaccines for free and and <laughs> and, and so on it, you know i mean that that was the, the the type of language that came out of this but we've got a huge problem with the impending uh, global food crisis um, that is uh, emerging out of the uh, Russian intervention in Ukraine, and more importantly, the the Western economic war of sanctions on Russia, where 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 actually is uh, you know the economic damage is coming from, and you know most countries uh, in the Western countries are certainly looking at going into recession and having severe economic problems. Inflation is out of control. Energy prices are out of control. So I mean you. I, I'm sure you've heard of brainstorming where, you know, the idea that you get these smart people in a room together and they sit down and they try to figure out a, a solution to a problem. Well, that's not what actually happens in corporations and that's not what's going to happen here. This is going to be blame storming. Right. Yeah, <laughs> this is already the U.S. in their their release. The important thing they want to focus is on is Russia's responsibility for the global food crisis. Right. Not not their responsibility for the global food crisis by trying to cut the number one exporter of wheat and sunflower oil to the world and several other grains out of the global market mm -hmm. by inhibiting their financial tractions, preventing, uh, creating every kind of obstacle for them to get their grain overseas, ship insurance, port docking, everything. I mean, they, they've uh, uh, um, they've weaponized their control of the uh, global financial system mm -hmm. to prevent Russia from making money transfers, Russian companies uh, likewise. But it's it's Russia's Ru – Russia is responsible uh, for all of this. Well, we've seen previously the rest of the world isn't buying it. Africa isn't buying it. Um, South, uh, South America isn't buying it. The only one who's participating in these sanctions is uh, the West and just the West yep. and – that's it. And um, going into the G20 format, if you look at the list of countries out of the 20 attendees, nine of them, you know, uh, counting Russia, are uh, not participants in these sanctions. Yes. And a lot of these countries, China, um, uh, Mexico in particular, Argentina, which just petitioned to join BRICS. And so, on, they, you know, they're, they're just not buying into this. And um, you are going to see a very divided um, uh, front, uh, you know, between the West and the rest at this yeah. G20. And I don't expect any joint communique of, of anything, much less anything of substance. I, I agree with that. And I want to I want to ask you a, a follow up there. Just before the beginning of the war, China and Russia announced what they called a no limits friendship. The economic relationship between the two countries is significant, and it's been significant for, for quite some time. And the Chinese, of course, as you've just said, have not placed any sanctions on Russia. The economic ties between the two countries are probably even stronger now than they were a year ago. How would you assess the political and economic relationship between China and Russia going forward? Do you think it can continue to improve as, as the war drags on? All right, so let's take a look at this, analyze this in numbers for the first quarter of 2022. Uh, Chinese oil imports from Russia are up 55%. Wow. Chinese gas imports from Russia are up 60%. Uh, 
Chinese coal imports from Russia are up 55%. Overall, China-Russia trade is up 28.7% year on year in the first quarter of 22. I, I think that says it all, don't wow. you? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with I, that. I'm, yeah. Those, those are pretty big numbers. Those are pretty significant. And they are, uh, of course, crucial to Russia at a time, particularly when Europe is making efforts uh, or, or rhetorically making efforts to say that they will be doing without Russian energy. Um, and um, uh, China, along with India, Malaysia, other Asian countries are stepping up and gobbling it up because it is a finite commodity mm -hmm. and it is a global market and the whole world is not on board with this. In fact, the majority of it are not on board with the sanctions and uh, they're grabbing up the energy because of the disruption in global energy flows that is occurring because the West is trying to do suddenly do without Russian energy. Michelle and I were having a conversation yesterday um, about Western press coverage of the war and how the government here seems to have convinced Americans that Russia is bogged down in this unwinnable war and that Western materiel can enable the Ukrainians to fight indefinitely. We all know that's ridiculous. We've said it a thousand times on the show. Now we hear news that the Russians have taken Luhansk and are preparing to move on Donetsk. The Russians also control Crimea. They control the land bridge. Uh, and that's beside the fact that the Russians have nuclear weapons and hypersonic delivery systems. How long do you think the Ukrainians can continue to fight with the same level of Western aid? Is NATO yep. pro prolonging, do you think, Ukraine's life or is it prolonging Ukraine's death? Statements coming out of Western governments and the stenographic Western media on the conflict in Ukraine remind me nothing so much as the statements coming out of Baghdad Bob yeah. um, at, during, yeah. during the Iraq war. Yeah, they are sure. so far removed from reality and so colored by their pro-Kiev regime propaganda where they don't – they simply – refuse to acknowledge the reality of the facts on the ground because they want the results to be the opposite um, out of some misguided effort that that this is part of an info war which has an effect on morale and we need to keep the ukrainians fighting and we need to keep the weapons uh and the money flowing uh to the kiev regime and it's it's not just prolonging the death of ukraine it is causing the death mm -hmm. of Ukraine, mm -hmm. right? Um, since this has begun, since this flow of weapons in particular has increased, they are just guaranteeing that Russia has to take more of Ukrainian territory. You give Kiev anti-ship missiles for the Black Sea, and Russia says, well, now we have to take <laughs> Odessa and the whole right. southwest coast remaining of Ukraine, uh, turning it into a rump state. Uh, you uh, provide them with uh, missile systems that are hitting Belgorod uh, in uh, western Russia, uh, hitting civilian buildings only. Um, because, you know, war crimes don't count when the Kiev regime is doing them, evidently. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't count for the last eight years of them doing in the Donbass. So why would they start now, I guess? Um, do you guarantee that Russia, Russia now has to take Kharkov? So they're actually pushing the eventual 
All right. Uh, we're either looking at the balkanization or the partition of Ukraine. And all the West is doing is ensuring that it will be less of a Ukrainian rump state, you know, Benderistan, when this is over, right. rather than more. And of course, more dead Ukrainians. But that, that's part of the Western plan, too. I mean, they, they, it's a win-win for them. As uh, Lloyd Austin said, uh, you know, they want to weaken the Russian military. But more than that, um, you know, Russia still hopes to win the hearts and minds of the majority of the Ukrainian people, at least in East Ukraine, back. You know, at, at the end of this, yes. they already have a significant number of them. They, they want to win back, you know, numbers in, in central Ukraine, western Ukraine. All right. That, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, but um, every Ukrainian conscript and they have a conscript military, men aren't allowed to leave the country. They have to right. register for the waves of that's being right. sent to the front. Every one of them that dies is a Ukrainian family that's just going to hate Russia forever. And the more Ukrainians that die, the harder it is for Russia uh, to win back those hearts and minds, which increases the probability of a eventual final brotherly rift between Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That's what the U.S. wants. And so it's a win-win situation for them. That's, that's a good point. I hadn't considered that perspective. The last time we had you on the show... Um, we uh, we spoke briefly about Turkey, and I want to bring that up again. The Russians continue to have relatively friendly and relatively open relations with Turkey, which is, of course, a NATO country. <laughs> I know that's really that's what we talked about last time. <laughs> the, the Turks are having very serious economic problems right now. Inflation is over 80 percent. It's the highest it's been since the 1980s. Uh, President Erdogan is facing re-election soon. And if the New York Times is to be believed, uh, there are six million voters who have only known Recep Erdogan as the president of, of Turkey. And they don't like him so much. Uh, the Turks would very much like to be the peacemakers between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, so first, do you think that's even possible? And second, do you think it's possible in light of the fact that Zelensky said again just a few days ago that Ukraine would not agree to any peace deal that included the loss of territory? Yeah, I don't believe that any peace deal is possible, certainly not at this point, certainly not with floods of Western weapons and arms flowing into the country mm -hmm. and Boris Johnson telling uh, that they uh, Kiev that they wouldn't even support negotiations with Russia. You know, I mean, uh, first of all, there's no peace deal. And if there was going to be any peace deal, it wouldn't be with Erdogan. I mean, Erdogan is selling uh, combat drones to Kiev. In, in the midst of this uh -huh. is, uh, and and it is blocking uh you know russian ship transit uh uh into the black sea through the dardanelles uh, they've also blocked russian airspace to syria or turkish airspace uh, from russia to to syria um and you know there's there's no love lost geopolitically, even if they maintain economic relations. Um, and if there was going to be any peace negotiator, if anything, that's Erdogan trolling. 
right? When, oh, when he's interesting. talking about peace negotiations, it's it's not serious, right? No one considers Erdogan, uh, you know, is going to be some type of peacemaker between Russia and Ukraine. It's it, it's Erdogan trolling. It's Erdogan being Erdogan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he depends on Russia economically for quite a lot. For energy, uh, they get 35% of their gas by by far the largest share from Russia, similar with oil. And they are their tourism industry is highly dependent on Russian tourists uh, for profitability, which uh, and uh, their produce uh, produce sales to Russia are a vital part of their agriculture. And when Russia put sanctions on Turkey for shooting down a Russian airplane uh, in 2015 on the Syrian border, that really hurt the Turkish economy, and they were quick to make amends for that. Uh, and uh, th- that's why they're not participating in Russian sanctions, because it would cripple their own economy. Interesting. Okay, thanks. Um, that is actually what I expected you to say. And I agree with you. Um, you also said on the last show uh, that you didn't think the accession into NATO of Finland and Sweden would be terribly consequential because both countries, you said, were already de facto members of NATO. Uh, Joe Biden was crowing about the fact that there's a new 800 or there will be a new 800 mile border between Russia and NATO uh, once Finland exceeds. Now that it, the succession seems to be on the fast track, you know, the Turks have already agreed, at least in principle. Do you feel the same way? Does this change the balance of power in the region at all? I mean, considering that they were already de facto members of NATO, had all NATO standard equipment, regularly participated in NATO drills and were, you know, continually improving interoperability. No. I mean, it doesn't change anything, them just joining NATO. And Russia has been very clear about this. Um, An 850-mile border of frozen swamps, I mean, it's not exactly an invasion route. Russia's not afraid. No, historically, it hasn't been. (laughs) No, coming down and and taking St. Petersburg anytime soon. Now, Russia will be much more concerned if Right. They're not scared of Finland. They're not no. scared of Sweden no. any more than they're scared of the Baltics or Poland. What they're scared of is the U.S. putting air bases um, and uh, missile systems and uh, SIGINT uh, resource, uh, you know, uh, gathering equipment uh, in Finland. Uh, and if that happens, then Russia will have to take some type of asymmetric response, you know, sending something to Venezuela, for instance, yeah. or Cuba yeah. or, or um, you know, uh, so on. I mean, it wouldn't be a direct response. It, it, it doesn't have the same strategic, historical or cultural importance that, that Ukraine does. But then Russia will have to react. The only thing that's going to happen now is a previously unmilitarized border is going to become militarized. Finland made good trade bringing products uh, into Russia, agricultural products, other products, that's going to shrivel up. Um, it's it's really only going to make Finns less, uh, you know, secure, security-wise, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're making an mm-hmm. unmilitarized border militarized and economically less secure because they're going to uh, have trade with Russia uh, stamped down even more than it already is because of sanctions. The only thing who wins from this is the Infowar PR game of saying that we're going to expand NATO geopolitically by hook or crook, yeah. uh, you know, and not, there's nothing you can do about it. Ha, ha, ha. And 
that I mean, that's that's what Biden is is saying right now. And Russia's like, you know, publicly, they have to say that, you know, um, you know, we we don't think this is good. This is only going to destabilize security for everyone. You may have an 850 kilometer border with us, but now we have an 850 kilometer border more with you. And, you know, privately, the Russian officials are like, Yawn. Is that all you got? <laughs> I I want to ask you too before we let you go about developments in the UK. Um, I I was just saying <laughs> during the intro mm-hmm. that Boris Johnson's problems uh, could drag on for quite some time. That you know we've seen many many times just in the last ten or twenty years. Uh, uh, Usually conservative uh, MPs turn against their prime minister and even absent uh, an election, they just throw them out. They threw out Margaret Thatcher and John Major. They threw out uh, Theresa May. It looks like they're in the process of throwing out Boris Johnson. Uh, The chancellor of the exchequer resigned yesterday. The minister of health resigned yesterday. Today, the the deputy chief whip resigned, although he resigned for his own reasons. Um, I said yesterday he groped two women. He actually groped two men. Okay. At the uh, yeah, I I stand corrected. Uh, the minister of children and families, which I had never heard of until today, resigned this morning, and um, it looks like the Conservative Party is in shambles. So where yesterday the British press is saying, "Look, Johnson's in trouble," but this could drag on for a year. Now it looks like there is a squad in number at 10 number Downing 10. Street, which we are told is there to confront him and say, it's time to go. And yes. It has the home secretary, the trade secretary, a bunch of other consequential people. Yeah. Not, These are serious yeah. people. Um, what are your thoughts on what's happening in the UK today? Domestic politics. Yeah. That is in- inconsequential. Mm-hmm. I mean, let, let's say that Liz Truce or Jeremy Hunt or Sajid Javid yep. becomes prime minister. Instead of, does that change British foreign policy? Absolutely in not. Not in or any way. If let, Let's say even that the conservatives fell in the next election and Ken Starber became the prime minister. Does British foreign policy towards what's happening in Ukraine change one, one uh, y, iota? No, not one not iota. All right. By getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the, the, the British media doing their best to tank him and, and participate in this absurd anti-Semite inquisition they held of him, uh, which is just, you know, laughably Orwellian. Um, they guaranteed the British people that no matter who they vote for, they get the same foreign policy. Right. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a managed yeah. democracy uh, at this point. So nothing is going to change their the foreign policy towards Ukraine and Russia, which means nothing is going to improve the British people's economics in terms of, of helping combat inflation and energy costs and so on, which means they, they've really got no alternative no matter who they vote for. It's not going to change these big factor things of the, that are going to be affecting them yeah. in the next year or two. Oh, yeah. Could be. Could be. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Mark Sloboda. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break.
local misfits, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody. I know my own name. That's John Kiriakou. I know his name, too. And I know the network we're on. Uh, it's Radio Sputnik. I think that's, that's right. the first time I've ever done that. So congratulations I'm to me. I'm still saying loud and clear. You, you're sometimes. all over the place, John. But me, it's a special day for me to do that. Anyway, uh, what we are going to talk about, it's because my mind is sort of like still trying trying to grapple with these next topics. We are going to talk about how to bring public capital back into public management and what new financial technology could do to help facilitate that process. We are also going to talk about whether there might be some good economic news happening right now under our very noses. Okay. We're, we're, our noses are paying attention to all the stuff that stinks, but maybe there's a little bit of, of good things happening. Uh, we are joined now by eternal optimist Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. He's a senior counsel at Westwood Capital and a fellow of the Century Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Hey, guys, great to be with you again to talk about the sweet smell of success. Yay! I mean, I do think that I do think the good news could actually be good and cool. Um, but first, we were going to talk to you about crypto, but then I saw that you have just published a paper uh, with Stanford's Journal of Blockchain Law and Public Policy that seems really interesting. And so I thought, well, let's get into that. We've been talking about, you know, crypto and NFT. Forget about them. They're gone. Uh, so this is a this is a for me, at least it was a long and complex paper. It's you know, I don't have a I don't have a, a particularly extensive economic uh, education, um, but I know that you are advocating for returning public capital to public management, and you present a process and structure for doing that, which, you know, in a late stage involves the blockchain. And I don't want to ask you to summarize the paper in the time that we have. We'll have to, I will ask you to, you know, give people enough of an idea to work through. But what I want to get to is, I think, the role of technology in this process. Because I do know people are rightfully suspicious of uh, other people, often Democrats, who offer tech solutions to what are political problems. But in looking at this paper, I think I see an interesting way for the, the tech aspect here uh, to maybe aid in overcoming the political hurdles to making these changes, because the tech aspect doesn't seem to me to be the fundamental change, right? Yeah. And on paper, the banking restructuring you're proposing does not seem that difficult. It's just that there are a lot of powerful people who make a lot of money in the warped system we have. And maybe the ability of the blockchain to make things uh, more public and more accessible can have some effect at, at chipping away at this political barricade. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I'll stop there and, and ask you to get into get into some of the details, because I've just said a lot of philosophy. Yeah, that's wonderful, Michelle. Thank, thanks. It's just a, a really great setup. I mean, I think the easiest way maybe to kind of, um, uh, in an abbreviated way, convey the basic message of, of the paper that you kindly noted uh, is simply to point to two kind of unknown features or facts about our contemporary uh, financial system. One is a big sort of macro point, and the other one is a sort of smaller micro point. But together, they kind of lay the predicate, you might say, for this proposal in this paper. So the big macro um, uh, sort of feature of financial system that people don't seem to be aware of is the essential role that the public sector plays in effectively generating all of the credit that finances various operations in our economy, which could be productive operations or could be merely speculative operations. And the choice is ours as to which of those two we want the system uh, to sort of reflect or to sort of pursue. So that basic fact is this. Banks do not lend the money that people put into their 
deposit accounts. Banks actually create or generate or issue money in the form of the loans that they extend. Indeed, the greater part by far of bank deposits are basically loan proceeds rather than monies that people have sort of antecedently accumulated and then taken over in you know paper bags or whatever to the bank to, to deposit. And the, the thing that makes this possible is the role that the public sector plays in constituting the national payment system that the banks are all kind of keyed into, right? So mm -hmm. if you want to take a loan out from the bank and the bank approves your loan, what it does is basically to credit an account in your name, either an account you already have with them or it creates a new account in your name mm -hmm. and credits that, or it gives you a cashier's check that you can go and deposit into some other account. The key feature of this bank money or bank these bank loan proceeds, um, as I'll call them, uh, is that they are immediately spendable. And that, mm -hmm. in turn, is because the system of bank accounts is integrated into a national payments system that's administered by our central bank, a public mm -hmm. bank, the Federal Reserve System. So what that means, then, is if I am a bank and I make a loan to you, Michelle, you can immediately take a bank card associated with the account that I've credited in your name, and you can swipe it or, or stick it into a, a machine someplace, and that's immediately recognized as fulfillment of a payment obligation. You can make payments mm -hmm. that way. Whereas if I'm not a bank and I give you a impressive card. You can't do that. Now, mm -hmm. here's why that's important. It's important because what it means is, in effect, all of this lent capital by banks and other financial institutions that largely replicate bank activities now, that's why we call them shadow banks, all of that is in a very important sense than public capital, right? It's mm -hmm. the public infrastructure that makes it possible. Now, we used to make sure that that so-called bank money went to productive uses, but we've stopped doing that in the modern era. All that we require is that bank loans be profitable, but as you guys know better than most, being profitable and being productive are two different things. You can be mm -hmm. much more, a loan can be quite profitable if it's merely lent speculatively to gamble with, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a big macro point. Now, the more micro point gets us to the technology aspect of this that you mentioned. So I'll just say this really, really quickly and then, and then <laughs> shut up for a second. So uh, another thing that people probably don't know about our financial system is that the U.S. Treasury Department operates an online system called Treasury Direct. And through Treasury Direct, in fact, if you guys Google that word, just Treasury Direct, all one word, you'll find instantly that anybody who has a bank account can open an account with the Treasury Department through which you can then purchase U.S. Treasury, US Treasury securities mm -hmm. or in which you can redeem those securities. It is effectively a kind of online banking system available to everybody. All we would have to do to convert that system into a universal payment and savings platform available to all Americans and all legal residents of the U.S. would be first to convert the system of Treasury direct accounts into a system of digital wallets, and second, allow dollars to trade over the or to be, be passed between those wallets or to be put into those wallets for saving or paid out of those uh, wallets uh, for spending. Uh, and, you know, back in 2020, I contacted U.S. Digital Service, which is an executive agency that upgrades the national, I'm sorry, the, the federal um, uh, technology capacities uh, on a regular basis, how long it would take to work a conversion of that kind. And they said it would take just a few months. It's, in other words, technically quite easy to do. So what I'm suggesting in the paper that you kindly noted is that we should take advantage both of that technological fact 
and of that financial fact that I opened with and immediately establish a system whereby everybody has capacity to save and to spend out of digital wallets and that they're, they're connected to the Treasury uh, the Department. Uh, we can eventually move them over to the Fed if we wish. At the, at the present time, the Fed tends to be slower to move on things like this than the Treasury is. And we can, in effect, cut out the middlemen and have an mm -hmm. actual functional financial system that works toward productive ends, not speculative ends. I do think that it is important to uh, to note and to reflect on, as you say, the, the difference between productive and, and profitable, and also that, yes, yeah, so these banks are, as you say, generating public money that we should consider this to be public money as it is publicly backed. And I wonder, you know, uh, when you say publicly managed, what, what do you envision as the sort of oversight mechanism for this? Uh, and, and how does technology facilitate that? Yeah, what a great, what another great question. So I think there are a couple of ways to to sort of effectuate this 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 sort of reallocating um, of publicly generated capital to productive uses. Um, the easiest way to kind of get that point across is to note something about the Federal Reserve System, uh, and it's a fact. It's it's basically a fact about what the Federal Reserve System used to do and what it does now. The original Federal Reserve System, as envisaged by Carter Glass, better known now for the Glass. Steagall Act, and by Paul Warburg, who was a German banker who immigrated to the, the U.S. and had a lot of knowledge, therefore, of the German banking system, which is very much concerned with production rather than speculation, was that it would be, in a sense, a national network of regional development institutions. That's why we have a New York Fed, a Chicago Fed, a San Francisco Fed, an Atlanta Fed, and so forth. And what those regional Federal Reserve banks were meant to do was to administer a system of essentially public liquidity provision <clears throat> and short-term public lending to new businesses, to startup firms and the like, that would be engaging in productive activity, basically creating new things, new methods of making things, all sorts of things having to do with the real economy and nothing to do with the financial economy. And it was actually written into the mandate that this lending activity had to be for, quote, productive purposes as distinguished from, quote, speculative purposes. And that system worked quite well in generating and in, in, in directing or allocating public credit in those productive directions. <clears throat> What happened was in the 1920s, we switched, or actually in the early 1930s, we sort of changed the Federal Reserve System in a fundamental way. We took away that lending role from the regional Federal Reserve banks that were supposed to be concerned only with productive lending. And we basically concentrated all of their functions in one of the regional Federal Reserve banks, namely the New York Fed. And the New York Fed, as you know, is geared toward Wall Street. In fact, it's located just two blocks off of Wall Street. And so in effect, what we did is we made Carter Glass's nightmare come true. Glass's mm -hmm. nightmare was the idea of a central bank that would be centered in the nation's financial capital and that would only be interested in and, and, and solicitous of um, the, the, the sort of needs or desires of the speculative banking sector, namely the Wall Street banking sector. So in effect, we've done that. And so another thing that I've been arguing then, which is, goes hand in hand with the paper that we're talking about and is referred to in that paper as well, is something I call spread the Fed. Uh, mm -hmm. And if anybody Googles my name and that phrase, spread the Fed, they'll find a ton of stuff on this. Basically, the idea is to restore that 
earlier Fed, that original Federal Reserve system that was focused on productive lending regionally all across the country, rather than on merely speculative lending in one part of the country, namely uh, Wall Street. And then I've written a bill uh, as well that would sort of basically uh, mandate all of this statutorily. And a little sort of tip off, we might want to talk more about this later this month, that is scheduled for announcement on a bipartisan basis later this very month. So we might have a lot more to talk about along these lines. But that's the sort of short playing version. That's very exciting. I also, I, Robert, I want to say, um, I hope we can keep you, we have to, we have this hard break for a station announcement identification at 1 p.m. But I do want to get to this um, other good news that we promised people. So I'm hoping we can steal another couple of minutes with you on the other side of this hour. But I also think, you know, it's nice, a lot of this will involve uh, more transparency and understanding about the the function of the Federal Reserve. And I think it's good because mostly, you know, the, the actions of the Fed are, are very mysterious to people. You know, there's sort of a lot of like sort of Vatican style smoke signals. And uh, when you when you point that out, you're sort of accused of being some kind of conspiracy theorist. And so I do think like a, a push to, uh, you know, spread it around and return it to its original, uh, you know, part of its original intention to be a sort of support for, for production in the American economy uh, is going to be a good one. We're going to take that break right now. We're talking to law and public policy professor Robert Hockett. We're going to come back on the other side of this hour and continue this conversation, talk about some of the political hurdles to making some of these changes, and then talk about what's going on with manufacturing in the United States. And is it good? All that coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we continue to be joined by law and public policy professor Robert Hockett. We have been talking about his new uh, proposal to bring public capital back into public management. And I wanted to uh, ask you, Robert, you know, we have a lot of problems in this country for which solutions exist. Right. And the the problem with implementing some of these uh, solutions or at least uh, uh, potential solutions is is politics and political will. And so I wonder, uh, you know, I, I wonder how you think you could make a proposal like yours uh, politically viable. Yeah, I think the key here probably, Michelle, is to sort of point out a distinction um, about, you know, that, that sort of is operative in, in the case of U.S. industry. And then to sort of point out that there are people on both sides of the proverbial aisle of Congress who, if made aware of this distinction, would tend to sort of join forces to sort of correct a lot of long-term mistakes. So the distinction is between uh, American companies that operate primarily here in the U.S. and are American in that sense, on the one hand, uh, and companies that are only sort of nominally American, maybe because they're headquartered in the U.S. or because they're incorporated in the U.S., 
but do the greater part of their operations abroad where they can exploit cheap labor and, in fact, exploit even oftentimes prison labor or mm -hmm. indentured labor uh, on the other hand. The former kinds of company oftentimes operate in ways that are beneficial overall to the economy, partly because they oftentimes are paying union wages or union level wages and are subject to other uh, sort of union imposed conditions, partly because, of course, they're providing good, decent jobs uh, that people can raise families on here in the country, and because they are adding to the nation's capacity to supply the goods and services that its money uh, is used uh, to purchase and hence operate in a kind of anti-inflationary manner. The other kind of company, they're generally the much bigger ones, the huge multinational companies that might have an American name and an American pedigree, so to speak, maybe because they were founded in the U.S. 120 or 30 years ago, but do most of their operations elsewhere, again, where they can exploit cheap labor and the, the, the nightmare stories that come out of the countries where they're operating are just blood curdling. <clears throat> and that is a kind of corporate America that is not really America and is not pro-American in any sense. Um, most people tend to think, unfortunately, including you know, people on the left and the right, oftentimes tend to think of corporate America as a kind of monolith. It's all one thing. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that particular divide that I've tried to draw is, is very stark and very distinct. And once you draw it to the attention of political figures, be they Republicans, Democrats, uh, or independents or third party folks like, like Bernie, then they tend to surprisingly agree on a lot of what has to be done uh, to to encourage more production and the more reshoring or friend shoring or what have you mm -hmm. uh, of U.S. production and what has to be done to sort of penalize companies that simply export uh, American productive capacity and American jobs elsewhere in order to exploit labor uh, elsewhere and undercut labor here. That is my principal ground of optimism, um, at least in this particular context, because when I talk about that point and draw that distinction with people in Congress who I talk to, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle on. They seem to get similarly indignant about it mm -hmm. and seem to be, you know, kind of serious about wanting to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Hey, I mean, let's hope, let's hope it holds. I hope we get to talk yeah. to you a little bit more about it towards the end of the month. But, you know, on the topic of production, uh, you, of course, are one of the voices that's been calling for some time for the U.S. to reorient its economy toward actually making things again. And a Bloomberg article notes that that might be happening. Manufacturing yeah. CEOs in the U.S., according to an analysis of their earnings calls, have been highlighting plans to relocate production using terms like onshoring, reshoring, nearshoring more than this year than they did even in the first six months of pa the pandemic. It's up a thousand percent compared to the pre-pandemic period. And Bloomberg also notes that the construction of new manufacturing facilities in the U.S. has soared 116 percent over the, the last year, uh, whereas all building projects increased by just 10%. So are we maybe getting something good? Yeah, I think we're beginning to, Michelle, and I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that there has been uh, some very kind of facilitative and fostering legislation that has been being passed on a bipartisan basis. And it, it's, it's anyone's guess why this isn't publicized more and talked about more and crowed over mm -hmm. more by Democrats and Republicans and independents alike. These are sort of success stories in the legislature, you know, rare, but, but they're there. Uh, a related point is I think a lot of private sector 
firms are themselves beginning to, to some extent, at least read the writing on the wall. And they recognize that maybe this whole outsourcing orgy of 30 or 40 years duration um, wasn't uh, a uniform good, if mm-hmm. I might put it, I might understate the point uh, somewhat. Uh, and of course, all of the supply chain disruptions highlighted by or sort of under, brought about by or, or sort of um, catalyzed by COVID, uh, I think to some extent have sort of brought this point home. But so also has, you know, a lot of a lot more attention drawing to that matter. I mean, I have very few kind words for Donald Trump, for example, but he did make this a salient matter during his campaign in 2015 and 2016. Whether he actually did anything helpful on it is another question, but he at least highlighted the point. Mm-hmm. And it looks to me as though Biden has picked that up too, and quite a few Dems. Bernie, of course, was way out ahead of all of them on this, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, but nobody listened to him when he was on about it. But basically, more people are beginning to talk about it now. And I think that's at least... Uh, the beginnings of a, of a helpful cultural shift toward a recognition that, you know, retaining the capacity to make the things that you consume and spend money on mm-hmm. might be a good idea, not just as a way of preventing inflation of the kind that we're currently experiencing to some extent, but also just as a way of, you know, rendering us less dependent on not altogether dependable sources mm-hmm. of, you know, basic goods and livelihoods, and also a way to keep decent jobs in the country, you know, a country that loses its manufacturing base ultimately loses its economy as a whole. And we're sort of discovering that the hard way now and beginning, I think, to course correct pretty much in the nick of time, certainly not a moment too soon. And, and there's I, much more we got to do. I want to highlight that, you know, decent jobs, right? Because I, I do think, of course, the, the U.S. has a real uh, lack of unions, but the manufacturing mm-hmm. industry is among the top 10 in the top 10 in the U.S. for union jobs. I think it's it's number eight. So when you say decent jobs, yeah, I mean, I think if if this actually does result in jobs that people can support families with, that would be a pretty uh, significant economic shift, I would think. It really would, yeah. If you if you look at the U.S. in the sort of post-war years, in the late 1940s and 50s, and most of the 60s, manufacturing accounted for a much larger chunk of the total U.S. economy then than it does now, and that was also a time then that everybody was doing much better, and you could even have single-parent households that could afford to live in you know decent houses and decent neighborhoods and send kids to school and college and so forth without racking up massive debt in order to do it, and that's effectively what I think the kind of of transnational corporate sector here in the U.S. gutted uh, in the name of supposed better or higher growth or efficiency maximization or what have you over the course of the 90s, early 2000s, and the last decade. And so if we can get back to something kind of like the industrial base that we had in the 50s or 60s or late 40s, I think people will be amazed at what a difference it makes because it turns out that there are spillover effects of that too. When there's that much more wealth, real wealth, material wealth, being generated, it does tend to kind of create a kind of tide that lifts other boats as well. And then even the service industries do better. Mm -hmm. But you can't really have a viable, strong service industry or other such industries uh, if you don't have at the base of it all a real serious manufacturing sector of the kind that we used to have and that now China, of course, has. Mm Robert Hockett, thank you for being our silver lining as always. That was Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell, professor of law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. He's the senior counsel at Westwood Capital, and he's a fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Michelle. And thanks again, John. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are going to take a quick break and come back with some nasty politics. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk about some immigration news that I feel like should be getting a little bit more attention. And also uh, what has been getting a lot of attention, which is what appears to be uh, the Democrats' growing dissatisfaction with Joe Biden and whether actually a primary of the president or a challenger to the president could be the shot in the arm that the party needs. Mm -hmm. Whether that's going to be good for the rest of us is a different question. But joining us for these conversations is Mark Shmuali. He's a local immigration attorney and immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's uh, immigration law section. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, You're welcome. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Josh. Hi. Let's start with DACA. Um, I did not know this, but Oral arguments. Well, I didn't know this till I saw it this morning in one story in the AP. But I guess oral arguments begin today in defense of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program enacted by President Obama, which allows people who were brought to the U.S. as children to stay here and work and not be deported. Although, of course, they have to, I believe, register every two years. Uh, you're not given any pathway to citizenship, and therefore you can't vote uh, unless I've got something wrong there. Um, but it does allow these people who uh, have, been, for the most part, been raised in the United States and know no other country as home to stay here and be members of society. Donald Trump tried to end the program through the U.S. Supreme Court, which said, uh, you have not actually presented a good enough reason <laughs> to us. Come back and try again. Uh, but then a Texas judge last year declared the program illegal, although he allowed it to stay in place while his order was appealed. And that appeal at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals begins today. Uh, Mark, as I mentioned, DACA has been threatened before. And so I wonder how seriously we should be taking the threat to it this time around. Well, uh, I mean, first, that was a really good summary. Just to back up a little bit, the reason that DACA was put in place in this 10 years ago was because uh, the DREAM Act, which was sponsored originally by Orrin Hatch and John mm-hmm. Kane and Ted Kennedy all working together, didn't make it out of uh, the Senate um, in, tw- in the lame duck in 2010 in about four or five Democrats that were already defeated, mm. already defeated, voted against it. Um, and they could have passed it in December of 2010. The DREAM Act, which would have made provide a permanent residency wasn't passed. So this was something that was put in, which had, you know, all the things you talked about, it's very temporary. Um, It's part of something called deferred action, which is already in the law. And it extends it to this group. Basically what it says is this particular group should be considered favorably for it. And Mm -hmm. it was them. And it has been in this litigation. um, I mean, Judge Hayden issued his decision uh, uh, last uh, month and or, or earlier this year, and he issued his original decision that Texas had standing about four years ago. Mm-hmm. It was a 120-page decision that he wrote then. Um, it is This has been in litigation all over in many states. There are actually two cases going on right now, but this is the, the, the main one in the Fifth Circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have... This is the first time that a circuit court has looked at the merits of, mm-hmm. of whether um, you know it can be this could be done. So uh, they're looking at two issues. One is whether the states um, have standing, whether they're really harmed, because you, you have to be you have to show you've been harmed to bring a case. And um, you know, Judge yeah. Hayden 
found that about five years ago, like literally, like in age 17 or 18, where he basically talked about dri- issuing driver's licenses and other services. But now, you know, the argument is, well, these, these folks in, in DACA are now, you know, they've been working for a while. They own houses. They pay taxes. They're actually yeah. uh, uh, a net benefit. So yeah. they're not losing stakes. Yeah. Um, so do you th- does that make you uh, think that, you know, the appeal has has good chances? Um, the appeal from, uh, well, um, the Fifth Circuit's rough and right. judges are, are Trump judges. So um, I, I don't um, I would not be optimistic in, in mm-hmm. I wouldn't be optimistic. Uh, I wouldn't. I mean, the law is clear that it's it's. It's permissible, um, but this is a um, the, the you know these courts. It's like the the, the case last week um, on the the migrant pro- protection protocols, which was five to four. That the dissenters um, cited just facts that are are talk show facts, not right. talk show, but you know like yeah oh, yeah do that right wing talk show facts about you know so it's wild times in American courts. I mean that's sort of my my next question, right? If 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 this case continues, right? If the appeal is rejected and they appeal to the Supreme Court, I don't know what the legal path is, but you know the the court shut down Donald Trump's previous attempt to end this program. But looking at this court, you know, I wonder how comfortable any DACA recipient in this country should be that they won't be made vulnerable to deportation in a matter of years if their fates are, you know, in the hands of the court system as it's currently constituted. I mean, it's interesting because Judge Hainan put put a stay on on his decision. Mm -hmm. He made his decision, but he he kept the program in. And his reasoning um, was, was... that he considered the effect of of taking it away from people that they've relied on it, and so that that is there. And mm-hmm. I, I think what we're looking at, is, if we want to look at it holistically, was Trump lost on his things because people I and mean, the courts were were saying you are creating disorder, you are creating uh, based on race, it's disorder, it's a shock to the system, and they turned around and did this to Biden. Like, wait a minute, this. You know, like last week with the microprotection protocols, you are this was an orderly program and we weren't, you know, releasing all these people through the US who weren't gonna go to court and we're gonna do all these bad things and, and it was, you know, so this is you're you're creating disorder. And in the case of DACA, you are uh, you know, circumventing congressional will and this is uh, you know, overall uh, um, uh, rewarding illegal behavior, and it's and it's creating a, uh, it's harming the system and perverting it and going too far. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it it's kind of what is good and what isn't, and what where is your fiction? So you know, but when they can say with the migrant pro- protection protocols that you're creating this fictionalized situation where the United States is protected and Mexico is housing these people. When in reality, people were sleeping on the streets, getting robbed, getting raped. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, the evidence that that was a good program was that fewer people applied. Well, yeah, if you're somebody who's a refugee and then you're stuck in those situations, you may just go back to Guatemala. Mm -hmm. You may just do that because your life is in danger in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing with DACA here is... um, you know, to 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 say that this has harmed the United States and harmed Texas mm-hmm. is a, a I mean, there's a few other things that have harmed Texas. Mm-hmm. 
But if you are dealing with the attitude that that, you know, immigration is itself a problem, right, that Texas is harmed merely by the presence of immigrants, then it's hard. You know, I, I understand what you're saying, right? If you have people, if you're trying to, you know, deal with terminology like harm and good and you have people who have the attitude that, you know, more brown people in the U.S. is is on its face harmful, it's, you know, it's hard to see these decisions going well if you won't sort of— uh, you know, take the understanding that the people that we are talking about here are, are, you know, normal members of society contributing like everybody else at the level of everybody else. Right. And in this case, you're really you're, you're talking about people who were raised here. I mean, you're talking yeah. DACA kids, which is, you know, uh, you wouldn't even know. Yeah. You know, they, they, they are the most assimilated of all, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Assimilated folks, except in maybe Canadians and some places, but right. they're, they're they're the most assimilated. So this is really um, uh, 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 this is an extreme. Yeah, and and I think you, I think you hit it right on. I think we have to talk about it the way that you were you were saying is we need to talk about it as if it's a a cultural issue because this is how you know this is how the courts are talking about it. Mm-hmm. This is how the courts are talking about it, and this is how the states are talking about it. And I've sat in on the supreme I sat in on the Supreme Court argument mm-hmm. on DACA on um, the, the when the Trump lost. I, I sat in on that, and that's how the arguments come mm-hmm. in these states. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't sound great. Let's let's switch over to politics a little bit, Mark. I, I want to talk about all this discussion over the past couple of days about um, frustration among Democrats with Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place, right? CNN yesterday had a story about a White House phone call with celebrity Democratic supporters on uh, the Monday after the Dobbs decision, during which the likes of Deborah Messing said, is there even a point to voting? We got Joe Biden elected. And what is he doing? Um, there was a little aside in this that tickled me that I have to bring up. Uh, it says White House counsel Dana Remus had assured senior aides the Supreme Court wouldn't rule on abortion that day. Uh, sorry, jo- producer Josh from By Any Means Necessary is the one who told me, like, hey, they've added another opinion day. That's I- I'm guessing that's going to be for Dobbs. Producer Ray right here was like, yeah, if I was a justice, I'd want to be out of town by the oh, time yeah. that opinion drops. So somehow the White House counsel uh, does not have the insight that our two producers here did. Um, but, you know, so CNN is telling us the celebrities are mad. The Washington Post is uh, contrasting Biden's uh, vague and sort of strangely optimistic initial response to the shooting in Highland Park with that of Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who came out with open anger, saying he was furious uh, that mass shootings are an American tradition and who's been coming for the NRA and others who are blocking gun control. Politico has Pritzker fever saying, or Pritzker fever saying his passion and energy are what the party needs in terms of tactics and messaging. And we have now just Joe Biden today was supposed to be in Cleveland, Ohio. Two candidates for office, two Democratic candidates for office, uh, have scheduling conflicts that will not allow them to appear with the president while he's there talking about a you know, program to support more union jobs. And so my Jeez. questions, Mark, are really, is this a typical sort of, okay, honeymoon's over period, or is Joe Biden's party really sick of him? And if they are sick of him, you know, obviously I know. Primarying the president is is seen as a sign of a, a fractured party. It's it's weakness. You're gonna you know hand the victory to the enemy. But if Joe Biden is really perceived as like the, the last of a sort of old formation that needs to be jettisoned, could actually having somebody come uh, challenge him be in fact in this moment what they need? I mean, I think people need to stand up 
AOC's done some of it. You know, there's some others who stood up and, and presented alternatives mm-hmm. um, in the area of immigration. This is what's positive. This mm-hmm. is what can't, you know, this is uh, in the area of, of, of uh, you know, of reproductive health, in the area of abortion, in the area of like all, you know, all of these rights to just be out there. I mean, he, he's, you know, the, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, these are these really conservative states, and I don't, I don't know Cleveland. I don't mm-hmm. know whether it's because progressives aren't uh, into him, and in, you know, because a place like Cleveland's pretty liberal, or mm-hmm. you know, in conservative places, or how much you know, he'd be helpful. I, I, I do think, um, you know, I do think there are people that are out. There's a few candidates that are who's running in the Senate that are outside of the, um, you know, machine, democratic, robotic. Uh, you know, Warnock comes to mind. Fetterman comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mandela Barnes comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Right? Who, who are you know a little bit more interesting and, and out there? And you know, I mean, we know what Biden is. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't think it's surprising that they um, uh, were not. I mean, it, it's not surprising, but it, it. I mean, they had this opinion two months ago. Yeah. And now it's sort of now it is a trend to talk about and maybe, you know, having an internal uh, enemy on which to blame your failures is is what these guys are going to need. I also you know, you talked about conservative states. I wanted to talk about uh, abortion rights and state Supreme Courts, because that, of course, is where uh, the most urgent battles over reproductive rights have have shifted. And of course, we have seen over the last, I don't know, is it the last decade that we have seen a rightward drift in state legislatures? Um, I think it is interesting that, you know, again, most Americans, when you poll them, want abortion to be legal and accessible under most circumstances. But we have ended up with governing structures at many levels that don't reflect that will. And so I wonder, you know, what you are anticipating at the level of state Supreme Courts over the next year when it comes to reproductive rights in, in, you know, know, all of these 50 states? Well, I mean, there's been a couple of state Supreme Courts so far that have had some, they put, put a stay on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because now they're digging into their own state laws. I mean, they have uh, um, constitutions that guarantee, you know, some, you know, because there were states that 30 years ago had very different politics than mm-hmm. now. And they had, they guaranteed uh, uh, abortion rights. And it's in their con- they codified it. Mm-hmm. They had, and so state supreme courts are looking at that. And I think it's the same with election protections and and, and some other things. State supreme courts, um, I tend to be a little bit better than state legislatures in in, in a lot of these uh, states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's um, you know, I mean, a place like Florida because they've had so many years of Republicans, mm-hmm. they, they that court's gone, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but we saw, you know, even in, in 2000 in Florida, when there, when it, there were some Democratic governors recently there, that that state Supreme Court ruled against Bush mm-hmm. election. So I think there are some state Supreme Courts that are just going to be more, um, uh, a little bit more proactive, more guaranteeing of rights mm-hmm. in the state legislatures. We know where they are. I also wonder about the implications by the Dobbs decision for for precedent, right? And if we should, you know, I don't know if we have talked too much uh, on this show about the sort of larger implications that that has just for the way that law is in- interpreted uh, in the United States. I-, I wanted to ask you about that or, you know, taking a long term view. Um, what, what does that mean for the function of, of courts at every level that are interpreting constitutional law and, and weighing precedent? Well, I mean, I, think it goes, I mean, in fairness, I think it goes both ways because 
Um, you know, there's a lot of precedents that we would like to uh, overturn. Mm. United now it's Dobbs, and and you know, I think when it comes to fundamental rights of individuals, it's a struggle, and and nothing is enshrined. And so, yeah, yes, what those justices were saying is it's it's something we need to uh, respect, and and therefore, you know, they. They uh, they not not respect like mm-hmm. respect it and follow it means they had to look at it and they then they didn't decide it as if it was a new case in front of them they they picked through Roe versus Wade and 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 uh, um, reversed it in mm-hmm. the same way that I mean Brown versus Board of Education was a whole lot more scientifically done um, and had a theory but they just didn't just say you know segregate separate but equal is wrong they said this is why. And they use sociology, and they you know, they had to overturn, they had to reverse a precedent. Mm-hmm. Versus Ferguson, so that's the same here. I mean, we just I think what people you know need to understand is this is is more the mentality and the ideology of this small minority of really undemocratic, authoritarian, white supremacist elected officials, and and not get hung up on who didn't do what they were supposed to do. This is not a classroom. Mm-hmm. You're in a, a struggle and there are rights that, you know, uh, you're right. A majority of people want and, you know, but a majority of people, you know, expect and you're not going to get it. You're, you know, people are going to need to really fight for them because God knows mm-hmm. they built movements. They fought for it. They took over school boards. They took over state legislators. They took over county councils, mm-hmm. They took over law schools. They got law, you know, they, they really, um, they, you know, people laugh, laughed at what they did in universities, but I know, you know, what happened in my state university where I went in Florida, what they've done mm-hmm. to get rid of certain uh, departments and defunding. And they really, uh, you know, they're sober. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're on it. They have an extra step. They're united. Mm-hmm. And they fight for these things. And so even though they're a minority, this is how they gain power and they're, they're directed. I have to say, Mark, it's refreshing to hear you talk about, uh, you know, not focusing on who didn't do what correctly or, you know, focusing on uh, what is the what is the culture? What is the ideology here? What are sort of, um, you know, intangibles? Because a lot I have I have a lot of lawyer friends. I talk to them about these different cases and I respect them very much. And they're good and moral people. But wow, there is a real tendency to uh, focus entirely on the the letter of the law or the sort of specific technical precedent and not the the modern day real world consequences of it and the type of society that if enacted, it will facilitate. And so I'm just curious, you know, I mean, obviously you, you are an attorney, but you are also very much in touch with the, you know, with the reality that laws are supposed to, um, I'm going to making this, <clears throat> putting this into words for the first time in my life, this idea of what law is supposed to do. So I'm not a lawyer who knows, maybe I'm totally wrong, but to me, it's supposed to, you know, it should help, um, guide and structure and support the, a type of society that we hope to to build and maintain, right? And so, you know, it, I, I just wanted to ask how you, how you navigate that tension between, you know, the need to um, have, you know, some kind of rules that mean something in a legal system and have, you know, history carry some kind of weight and yet also be able to recognize when you have been caught up in, in the trees and not seen the forest. I mean, it, it's it's tough. It's tough with what I do, and I've had I've had cases. I mean, I, I had a case uh, a few years ago with a kid, uh, and it was not part of his case per se. But he had been, you know, a, a border patrol agent. It stuck his foot on his neck. Mm-hmm. Said, 
you know, this was August 2016. He said, when Trump gets in, we're going to stop you guys. And then his partner pulled him off and they talk about, you know, these sort of wild guys on the border. But mm-hmm. I said that in court to a judge. I said, this is what happened. He was tortured by this. You know, this is reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people, you know, and, and, and it's a reality out there. And I think when people... Uh, you know, see that because, you know, there's a lot of people because it's also very liberating because there's a look in all of those quote, you know, we talk about red states and all of those states, you know, one of the interesting things was how much the evangelical churches supported DACA and they hated the anti-immigrant stuff, but they had to be quiet about it. Hmm. These are their people, but they had to be quiet about it because they didn't, you know, and, and essentially, I mean, because you have to have that belief. You can't have a belief that we, we, are inherently, you know, that there's this inherent place where everybody is and nobody can move. Um, and I think that it's as impressive on them to have um, those views. And, and I think the lameness that you're talking about, the lameness of the response from the Democrats is oppressive for people who need their rights protected. Mm-hmm. You know, because, it, and it is this small minority. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's these, I mean, one of the things that Trump did was he empowered all of these people as we say on the January 6th committee that are essentially not, not talented for the moment, right. no matter what their ideology is. And that's what these judges are. A lot of these decisions are just not good, but they are directed and they're, you know, and so I think that there is this majority and I do think, you know, it's, we've got to be honest. Yeah. So yeah. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for continuing to try. That was Mark Schmueli. He's an immigration attorney and immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section. Thanks, as always, for joining us, Mark. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great time. All right. You too. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk to our very last guest. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Federal agents have been showing up at the homes of Americans who have written angry tweets about the Roe v. Wade decision. A Dallas woman who tweeted, quote, slaughter them all, unquote, about uh, the six Supreme Court justices who voted to overturn Roe, had a federal agent and two police officers show up at her home. And a Texas man who said he would kill the Supreme Court justices with an AK-47, was arrested at his home by the FBI and then held on $25,000 bond. It's one thing when people threaten violence, but it's quite another thing when they express an opinion online and are somehow punished for it. Facebook has been removing posts that include the home addresses of the six justices who voted to overturn Roe, even though those addresses are freely available on public websites. And Instagram and Facebook have begun removing posts offering abortion pills, even though they are legal to prescribe and, in most cases, to send. Do Americans have no rights against big tech, big brothers anymore? We're joined by privacy expert and technologist Chris Garafa. Chris is also the host of the Covert Action Bulletin, the podcast of Covert Action Magazine. Welcome back, Chris. 
Oh, great to be back with you. Thanks for having me again. Oh, I've been so looking forward to this conversation, Chris. The the Dallas Morning News reports that two people visited by federal agents have been had been reported to law enforcement by neighbors who had seen these these tweets. Let's assume that's true. But we all know that big tech's algorithms are such that they alert them to people who have opinions that might be deemed to be out of the mainstream. Um, is there any way to protect ourselves against this kind of, of information oppression? Well, let's look, you know, whether it was a neighbor or somebody across the world or a DHS agent themselves who was just searching Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you know, for posts like this, we have to realize that when we put something out there like this on the internet, it is out there and anyone mm -hmm. can take a screenshot of it, share it, do whatever it is they want with it. Even when you delete something, it's not necessarily necessarily deleted forever. That's a major thing we need to keep in mind. Mm. I, you know, I, I tweeted myself after I saw this sto uh, story from the Dallas Morning News, you know, really dance like no one's watching. But tweet like the FBI is going to read your your exactly your posts exactly in a yes because they're going to they're going to um, you know I think you know what this woman posted uh, Miss Walker burn every government building down now slaughter them all and I've removed a number of expletives because we're on the radio um, you know. Obviously, I mean, I think so many people are showing that kind of anger and rage and just just being upset with the Supreme Court decision, certainly overturning Roe, but all of the other decisions that have come down in this this awful far right term. So I think it's completely understandable, this anger and just, you know, if somebody said that to me, just sitting next to me in my home, right, I wouldn't think that they were going to go be serious about mm -hmm. it, you know, especially the day of the decision. You'd think, OK, we're all angry here. But the difference is you're putting it out there online. And even if you don't have your name on your account, even if you don't use your personal email on your account, all it takes is a subpoena or other requests to, to, to Twitter to say, give me everything you have about the person who posted this and they can get whatever emails or whatever it is. And then go to your let's say it's they give you your IP address. Then they go to the your ISP, Comcast, AT&T, whoever it is, and say, OK, who was using this IP address at this time? OK, now I'm going to go to their house and deliver this letter to them, which is like uh, and the idea that they had to go hand her this letter on a, like a Thursday morning or whatever day it was saying you're going to stop doing this. Um, also, I mean, really, that's. It feels like to me like complete overreach by the by, you know, DHS. Why her yeah. posts, you know, in particular, why this one person's posts? I've got a friend who he did something silly. Uh, he posted that if he were to ever meet the president, that he would like to vomit on him. OK, that's what he said. It's stupid. Yes. Forty eight hours later, there's a knock on his door and it's the Secret Service. So you're exactly right that they're out there reading these posts. They're they're you know, they probably have armies of GS fives sitting at terminals just going through Twitter and Facebook and uh, and all these other uh, social media platforms looking for this kind of thing. Um, on, on the day of the Roe v. Wade decision, Chris, I, I tweeted a warning that people should be careful to not be too provocative because the FBI, NSA, maybe even the CIA, others, Homeland Security, whatever, 
we're reading our tweets and we're looking for a reason to harass people. A lot of people responded that I was overreacting. I don't think that I was overreacting. Uh, do you? No, I mean, John, if you if you were overreacting, then so was I. And I think that puts me in some good company, frankly. You know, I when I look at this there, it is not an overreaction to say, be very careful about what you say online. Mm-hmm. Do we have you know, freedom of speech from punishment by the government, we absolutely should have and and do should exercise our First Amendment rights. But we also have to recognize the reality here is that, you know, these the governments, they do have agents just sitting and they're basically name searching all day mm-hmm. for POTUS, for the FBI, for mm-hmm. whoever it is, uh, frankly. And that's what they do. They don't you know, this doesn't have to be about, you know, some sort of super elite prism, you know, unit at the NSA. Yeah, yeah exactly. Literally just using the public Twitter search feature to see what's going on in conjunction with the reports that Twitter itself gets when you report a tweet, they can forward those. And of course, we're not just picking on Twitter here. This is all of the online services, right? They all will work with law enforcement when they get, you know, these kinds of, you know, these kinds of reports. Again, if you're putting it out there online, you have to consider this is going to be next to your face your words next to your face on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And is that the way it's going to come across to to everyone, to a prosecutor, mm-hmm. to a jury? It's not just what you're saying, but how you say it as well. I think we really need while we're angry, while people are frustrated and looking for solutions, we also need to be considering what is the most effective you know, outlet for that anger. For me, I would say it's building movements, building progressive and revolutionary movements, building movements to defend reproductive justice. You know, while I also certainly understand how good it feels to to shout on Twitter, it's actually going to cause, you know, more problems when we see things like this happening. Yeah. I want to read to you a quote, uh, a famous, rather famous quote by Elliot Spitzer, who used to be the uh, governor of New York. Before that, he was the attorney general of New York. Um, He resigned after an unfortunate incident that's irrelevant to this quote. But this is one of the smartest things that I've ever read in my life. He said, never talk when you can nod and never nod when you can wink and never, ever put anything in an email because an email is death. You're giving prosecutors all the evidence we need. I would add not just email. I would add a social media post. Right. If you're going to if you're going to take to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever and rail against something where like these two people in Texas did um, in the last couple of days and talk about taking your AK-47 to find out where these Supreme Court justices live or burn down buildings or, you know, do a mass shooting. Well, what what do you think is going to happen now? That's one thing. The other thing is, if you are expressing a legitimate political position or lamenting the loss of of your civil liberties, well, the government has no business harassing you when you're doing something like that. Now, when somebody is expressing a legitimate opinion, is there any way that they can protect themselves, Chris, from, from the government in the tech sphere? Every American certainly should know the rights that the constitution gives us, right? You should never, ever, ever talk to a cop. You should never talk to a federal law enforcement uh, agent without your attorney sitting next to you. 
But what do you do online when you're just sitting there, you know, with Twitter on your phone while you're on the subway or whatever? Do we just have to self-censor? I don't know if it's self-censoring as much as realizing that this isn't just us shouting out downtown on a street corner, right? Yeah. This is us shouting into the microphone of every law enforcement agency that exists. Mm-hmm. That's that's the reality of it, is that, you know, the the fact that they can all pick up what you're saying and parse it and, and do all of that. You know, I think certainly we should be able to express ourselves politically and personally online to talk about how these rulings, how these politicians how these justices are impacting us and what we're doing to organize and to build a better world around it. For those of us who want justice, we need to be able to use the internet as a tool, mm-hmm. but one tool out of many to organize and to you know spread ideas. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I uh, was going to say. Like, uh, sure, self-censor, but also, you know, a, a lot of uh, what passes for politics and engagement has been degraded down to just shouting online. And increasingly mm-hmm. angry and threatening yes. shouting online. It doesn't do anything. If that's what you are doing to make yourself feel good politically, but what you you know, you are angry enough to to make these threats, you're angry enough to want some serious change. Yelling online, no matter how uh, many threats you make or how vile you are, is not going to achieve it. And so, yeah, I was going to say it, it should be able to be a tool to get somewhere more effective. If this is the level of energy that you're feeling, uh, maybe try and take that somewhere you know, to some people who who are organized, who are organizing, who have some long-term, you know, plans to actually achieve something mm-hmm. and not sort of fall into this habit of uh, political engagement means making sure as many people as possible, the vast majority of them strangers, uh, know what my position is on this particular topic, and then I'm going to walk away. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, you can you should go join an organization, go find somebody who's hosting a forum, a rally, a discussion group or whatever it is that that piques your interest. Go get involved. And if you don't have one, go reach out to one that you've seen on the news and see how you can get involved and build in your own neighborhood. I mean, that's the only way we're going to do this is together. We're not going to you know, win, win back reproductive rights on Twitter. Yeah. It's a tool yeah. to use in the fight, but it's a tool to use smartly. Chris, uh, in the immediate aftermath of of the Roe decision, uh, I read a couple of articles warning women who use period tracking apps that the apps were collecting data um, about them and could somehow pass that data to law enforcement if, you know, suddenly they weren't having periods and then six months from now they start having periods again. Um, I'm very interested similarly about what happens when somebody tries to buy a morning after pill online where does that information go does the government have access to that information is there anything in place to protect the the consumer is there anything to prevent the seller or the app developer or someone else from turning the information over to the authorities is this something we need to be worried about It definitely is. The only way to prevent that information from being available is to not share or store it in the first place. So unfortunately, that could mean not using an app or a website to buy uh, to buy abortion pills. That could mean, you know, not going to certain websites from your home computer or phone, um, you know, or not calling certain places Uh because 
all of that is tracked. Your internet service provider can see what websites you go to unless you take specific precautions. Your, you know, phone provider can see who you call and who you text unless you're using something like Signal, right? And so, but if they don't track that information, if let's say you order something online and the store says, well, we're not going to save any information about your purchase after your uh, purchase has been delivered. I mean, that's very unlikely, first of all, just for their own financial reasons, right? So you have to consider, do I even trust this store? Like, can they even delete my information just for tax purposes? They're not going to be able to do that. So unfortunately, there are a lot of scams out there. And we see this whenever there's any kind of crisis. We've seen it with, you know, the gas crisis, We've seen it, unfortunately, very unfortunately, with uh, period tracking apps, with uh, with abortion bills, even with uh, Plan B. I've seen it online on scam sites. People saying wow. it'll be you know sent discreetly and things like that. Right. So. You know, you'd have to take some very, very serious steps uh, in order to protect yourself to the extent that you wouldn't be able to be identified. I think there are important things that you can do, um, you know, in terms of digital self-defense. You know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and other yeah. groups have a really good list of ways to to do search for information, to talk to people securely so that uh, even if somebody has a legal tool, a subpoena, a warrant, there's no information to give them. Because again, that's the best way to keep something safe is to not have it at all. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's a really important question as we go forward, especially the question of if something was legal and now is not like abortion is having, you know, has is having information um, about what was legal activity on your phone or computer now mm-hmm. is that going to get you in trouble? And I think there's a lot of really interesting legal takes that unfortunately are going to need at this point, the way things are going, examples. People are going to have to fight them in court in order to find out the answers to these things. Chris, um, I'm involved with a, a new social media platform that is based in Iceland. And um, it's based in Iceland for a whole bunch of reasons, all related to privacy and to non-interference. Are are some countries better than others with regard to these tech privacy issues, or are we fooling ourselves? In some instances and in some specific ways, yes, there are countries that are better than others. Iceland, yes, is one, certainly. Um, you know, in the European Union, you have the right to be forgotten. You right. can tell a company, a website, hey, delete everything you've got about me. Right. And Or you can even just say, send me everything you've got about me and then delete it. I want to know what it is first and then delete it. Mm-hmm. You can be removed from Google search results in the EU, uh, things like that. Those are really important things, and we need them in the U.S. But that's on the legal side. I think on the extra legal side, where this case of state surveillance comes in, is really where we have to start wondering about these things, especially when we talk about the Five Eyes countries, the right. Nine Eyes countries. These are all U.S.-centric and Eurocentric. Uh, alliances that share information just because they're not supposed to be collecting that, let's say, on the wire, live information. Does it mean they aren't? Does it mean they're not going to share if it goes through one slightly weaker jurisdiction to another, if the the one with the stronger laws requests it? So, yes, there are differences for the general day-to-day privacy on the Internet of having Google have your your calendar information and some shopping stuff, right? That is, you know, that does exist and that's important, 
But ultimately, it depends what is it you're trying to protect and who are you trying to protect it from? And that's really the question we always have to ask ourselves is who is our our adversary here and what are we trying to do to prevent them from getting our information? Excellent. That was the very well-informed voice of Chris Garafa. Chris is a privacy expert, technologist, and the host of the Covert Action Bulletin. That's the podcast of Covert Action Magazine. You're listening to uh, Political Misfits, but we're not going to take a break. No, we are going to go straight into... I, I got to tell you, I please. just I went to the, Dr- the Drudge Report a minute ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're always... Drudge is always kind of with his hair on fire. Yeah. Um, but he's saying that Boris Johnson can't possibly survive the next uh, couple of days. Now, he makes a very important point. Uh, and that is that internal Tory party rules say that if you have had a vote of no confidence, you can't have another one for a year. Right. Okay. But it's their rules. It's their rules. So they can change it. And they're meeting next week to change the rules. Ah, there you go. Uh, more <laughs> Boris Johnson news. There were more cabinet resignations, uh, more ministers resigning from government in the today. last five minutes. Uh, then have ever resigned since yes. uh, the previous record in 1932. 14, <laughs> I just saw that chart. 14 ministers left uh, just today in a single day. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing. Who knows? I mean, now nah, you don't make, listen, don't make Boris Johnson the underdog. No. Because then my instinct is going to kick in and I'll be like, nah, stick it out, Bojo. Come on. You've been through worse, but you really haven't. And your party obviously really hates you although as mark saboda was pointing out earlier i mean what it's not there's not going to be a general election no 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 no, the conservative government will continue nothing to do with the general election they'll get rid of johnson yeah what that means for the people of the uk you know even the people of the uk maybe not a whole lot no no and and who who's next is it going to be prime minister Preeti patel is it going to be I mean, Savage I think people would not say that that would be an improvement. No. Priti Patel in particular. And that's, that's my point. I yeah. don't think any of these people being being talked about right now would be much of an improvement over Boris Johnson. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if if Donald Trump had resigned and then the person that would replace Donald Trump wouldn't necessarily be the vice president? It would be somebody chosen by those around Donald Trump yeah. to, be, to be the new president? Can you imagine? Oh, my God. It would have been Trump Jr. Exactly. Yeah. Don Jr. (laughs) God, maybe we won't. I think maybe we've dodged that bullet. Uh, Great news for the children of the United States. Uh, Jewel has been saved. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) So, uh, obviously, the the e-cigarette maker um, appealed the agency's decision to ban it from American shops saying, hey, that's not fair. We're not more dangerous than other things on the market, et cetera, et cetera. And so the FDA has said it would suspend the ban while the appeal is going on. So see, they've never explained to us why it was just Juul. Yeah, no, they didn't. They said, no. oh, it's unsafe. Well, they sort of said the the specific way, you know, your sort of proprietary way of delivering nicotine and these chemicals make a, you know, they're particularly dangerous somehow. But I don't think that it has really uh, made that case, especially, again, when you point out that you can still you can still s- just smoke tobacco in an old fashioned cigarette if you want to or right. roll your own. I mean, right. 
Yeah. So uh, the agency is saying that it has determined there are scientific issues unique to Juul that warrant additional review. But for the meantime, for the meantime, all the babies out there can go and get their their bubblegum flavored, uh, <laughs> which, which to be fair, vapes. I think they haven't produced in, in several years no, since they were right. accused yeah, of yeah. specifically right. marketing to teenagers. <laughs> but I mean, again, is that worse than what other people do? I don't know. There's even a Family Guy episode about this. About Jewel. Yeah, where the baby starts smoking uh, bubblegum, raspberry bubblegum flavored uh, vape cartridges. I don't think I've ever smoked a vape or an e-cigarette. I don't think uh. I've ever attempted to. I know. Uh. I've, okay, I've smoked marijuana through one, but I don't know if that's the same thing. And I think only uh, once. I don't know. On a street corner, a friend of mine <laughs> gave me a puff of hers. Just didn't. It just didn't appeal. This, you know, cigarettes are good enough. Yeah. And also my weed can just be weed, right? Right. You know, we were talking about right. dispensaries the other day going yeah. in and there's like so many different vehicles. Yes. Of administration mm-hmm. that look so intimidating. Yeah, I don't know. I told you I was in New York the other day and uh, now they've got these uh, these trucks like food trucks all around the city. And you can just buy dope trucks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's edibles and it's, you know, all different kinds of stuff, anything you want, but you have to pay cash. That's fun. Yeah. Keep the cash economy alive. That's right. I'm, I'm tired of every, like, everything being credit cards. Um, we are probably going to talk about both of these topics more tomorrow. There's uh, a lot more being written right now about Brittany Griner. Uh, and she continues to yeah. be on my mind. There is yes. a, a story about how actually one of the problems that she is facing is uh, a fight within the U.S. government about, mm-hmm. I think, prisoner exchanges mm-hmm. and sort of knee jerk opposition to doing it when, in fact, it does seem like that's the only way there's, that we get Brittany Griner out of detention. There's no downside yeah. to prisoner exchanges. There's no downside. They should be all over this thing. And the other thing I'm thinking about, I mean, honestly, I, when I was first thinking about this, I was thinking, how many diplomatic victories have we seen come out of this administration? Mm-hmm. Their diplomacy does not really seem to be their strong suit. However, one maybe victory that they have achieved was with Trevor Reed, right? Who yeah. is someone who they got in a prisoner exchange from Russia, who yeah. been detained in his case for endangering a police officer was what he was convicted of. So maybe Brittany Griner should have some hope. But yeah, I'm I'm interested in this sort of knee jerk uh, opposition to prisoner exchanges that that she is going to have to overcome. I'm gonna I'm gonna blow my own horn here too. When when Joe Biden was first elected president and he named Tony Blinken Secretary of State. I don't remember which show I was on. It must have been the one with Lee Stranahan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, I've, I've actually known Tony Blinken for a long time. I, I took his desk mm-hmm. when, when I went to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He went to the, to the West Wing with Biden. Um, he's not a professional diplomat. Yeah. He's a professional functionary. All of his adult life has been spent serving Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. you know, in Biden's Senate office, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, in OVP, the Office of the Vice President. Which is not the same thing as understanding how to negotiate with with an adversary or with somebody whose interests might not be exactly aligned with yours. No. And that was the point I made at the time, that Mm -hmm. this this guy, I know him, he's a nice guy, but he's going to be a weak an ineffectual secretary of state. And that is exactly what's happened. Yeah. I mean, noticeably failed at diplomacy with, uh, you know, if if the U.S. ever intended to avoid war in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. did a pretty bad job of that. Uh, Iran negotiations just completely stalled. 
Yeah. Um, we also, I think tomorrow we're going to have a new look at a report on the Ubalde uh, school shooting that lays a lot of blame on, uh, not necessarily on the leadership, but on the individual officers who were responding to. But Good. That'll be for tomorrow. That's all we've got time for today. I want to say thanks to all of our guests, as always, to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>